This morning, I'd like to take our time together and examine what is largely perceived to be the world's greatest short story. The greatest short story ever told. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son recorded in Luke chapter 15. This simple but beautifully dynamic tale of the tragic decisions of a wayward son, the loving heart of a father who graciously receives him upon his return, and the pious actions of an older brother is not only shy of a brilliant stroke of storytelling, but its impact made a dent in that first community as it does in ours today. Let's dive into our text, Luke 15. Let's begin with verse 11. We read that Jesus said, He's telling a story that a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So the father divided them, divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. To begin with, Jesus' story opens with the introduction of three central characters. It opens, a certain man and his two sons. We will come to find these two sons are a younger and an older. What makes that detail interesting is the title that most scholars have given to this parable. The parable of the prodigal son is misleading. This story is way more than just a story of one man, the prodigal, but it's a story of a father and an older brother as well. Let's begin by just looking first at the younger son. Though we aren't provided the reason for his request or what circumstances led to it, this younger son brazenly approaches his father and asks to be given his inheritance early. And while there is no doubt that this request would have grieved the father, to say the least, and was somewhat abnormal most of the time, sons would wait for their father's passing before requesting the inheritance, still what's happening wasn't terribly or completely uncustomary. That said, after receiving his portion of goods, it didn't take long for this younger son to quickly reveal his true intentions, his underlying motivation for asking for the inheritance. We're told not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far land. The idea behind this phrase, gathered all together, is that he took his inheritance and he liquidated the assets into cash money. Understand. The picture that Jesus is painting for us, painting his audience, is a young man who has completely and utterly rejected his father. This younger son has no real interest in his birthright, no delight in his family's legacy or his heritage. This request to receive the inheritance before his father's passing was simply a means to to an end. The younger son wanted the freedom The ability to start a life as far away from his father's influence as possible, which is what's then implied by the idea of him journeying to a far country. Sadly, 
for this young man. It didn't take long upon arriving to such a country that we're told he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Once again, while it may just appear from a simple reading that he had squandered his money, what Jesus is laying out for us reveals a much more deeper dynamic, a deeper element. Upon arriving to this far country, the young man adopted what we would call a prodigal lifestyle. In the Greek, this adverb that we have translated as prodigal literally means that he was lax in morals. In a sense, the young man intentionally engaged when he arrived at such a country, the opposite behavior he knew deep down was right. He acted in such a way that defined his own conscience. And what resulted? Jesus tells us that he wasted his possessions. Or literally, because of his prodigal living, he scattered his substance, as some of your translations might say. The great tragedy, and keep this in mind, of this particular story is not that this young man ended up broke because of his behavior. The tragedy of this story is that he ended up broken as a result of his behavior. His substance or, or substance, the very thing upon which the man once stood, his core foundation had been squandered. He had slowly scattered his moral compass, eroded his moral standing with each rebellious decision. What Jesus is telling us is that because of the choices of this young man to operate in direct defiance to what he knew to be true, he eventually found himself, as a result, a shell of the man he once was. In a sense, the prodigal literally lost his way. Well, verse 14, we read, But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went... And joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him, he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. What a sad, but in some regards, expected turn of events. Did you notice that it was when he had spent all that there arose a famine in the land. It's not an accident that the very moment this young man had exhausted his resources and completely lost his moral compass, that a famine resulted. We're told as a result, the young man, because of the famine, began to be in want. His life, understand, was now empty. He's in a far country, barren, his life is fruitless. Everything that this far country had once provided him that, that yielded satisfaction, everything that had initially filled this new life with purpose, meaning, everything that had made him happy had dried up. The prodigal has not only lost his way, but this far country has left him parched, thirsty, and wanting. And if things couldn't have gotten any worse, what transpires would have left Jesus' audience aghast. 
this man not only joins himself or glued himself to a citizen of that country, but then this man, this prodigal, was sent into the fields to feed swine. As an unclean animal, the very thought of feeding swine was insulting to the Jewish sensibility. It was beyond degrading. It was offensive to a modern audience. It would be akin to Jesus telling a story of a pastor's son whose life had so descended into the world that he's so destitute, so wanting, he, he can only take a job editing video for a porn company. You would be like, what? It, it would be like Jesus telling a Baptist audience that this young man has now been forced to go to work at Creature Comfort's brewery. Just when you thought things couldn't have gotten any worse, they got terribly worse. What Jesus is presenting to his audience was a young man whose stubborn rebellion and the rejection of his father had taken him to a place that he would never have chosen. This was not the life he had taken the inheritance, liquidated into cash, and departed to a far country to have. This was not the destiny he had in mind. This was not his plan. This was not what he had wanted to do. This was not what he set out. It wasn't a 10-year plan. And yet it's what resulted. Not only is this prodigal broken and empty and wanting, but everyone, all of his friends, has completely bailed on him. Jesus says in such a condition, no one gave him anything. This man is stuck alone in the muck of his own making. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. In verse 20, we're told that he arose and he came to his father. Pause. This phrase, when he came to himself, can be translated, when he came to his senses. In the depths of his sin, in this place of total brokenness and despair, Want. This young man awoke to a reality that had always existed. He was in this particular place, feeding swine, longing for the pods that they ate. He was there. Why? He had chosen to be there. Though he had treated his father as if his father were dead and then proceeded to squander the life he had been given, his life, it dawns on him, didn't have to remain in such a state. After all, his father wasn't dead. And as a matter of fact, the very home he had been so quick to run from still remained. It's interesting. But this young man, in such a depressing state, didn't think about all the strategies he could employ to improve his situation in the pig pen. 
Instead, the mark of real sanity was his understanding that he actually had a father and he had a home he could return to. Notice the evolution in his thinking. First, this prodigal reached a point where he would honestly compare. He honestly compared his current situation, the fact that he was perishing with hunger, with the environment he knew existed in his father's home. He even remarks, even the the hired servants have bread enough to spare. You see, this man was finally willing to concede life with his father, dear old dad, was far superior to life apart from his father. Man, it took a gigantic humble pill that he had to swallow to concede this point. Secondly, the young man was willing to admit that his present situation existed for one reason. He had sinned against heaven and before his father. This prodigal wasn't blaming his turn of circumstance or his present situation on anyone other than himself. He took full ownership. He knew he had acted the fool. His situation, he recognized, was the byproduct of what? Nothing but his rebellious decisions. It was the consequence of him choosing a prodigal life, a life of sin. Third, it's noteworthy that this young man also, he didn't possess any type of of sense of entitlement. He knew that there would be natural consequences for his actions. He had rejected his father. He had then made a mess of the life his father had given him. This prodigal understood his unworthiness. He recognized his true inadequacy. He acknowledges correctly that he was no longer worthy to be called a son. The fourth thing you should note is that it's also evident his perspective and view of his father had also morphed. It had changed. And the first exchange with dad, the man does what? He issues a command, right? A directive. You can hear it. Hey, dad, give me my inheritance. Give it to me. And yet now we see a different perspective, right? This young man is willing to come to his father, not making demands or issuing commands, but what? Asking. First it was give me, and now it's make me. The prodigal son has come to the point in his life where he was willing to submit to the will and the intentions of his father. You might say he had reached the end of himself. Finally, the prodigal also understood that his will would need to manifest into action. He declares initially, I will arise, I will go, I will say, all of which would have been nothing but an intellectual exercise if he didn't what? Get up and go. And then say, you see, the man didn't just act, like think about repentance. He was willing to act. You see, his contrition and his repentance was represented in the fact that he's willing to get up and to go and ask for whatever position his father was willing to give. His feet followed 
Well, the second half of verse 20, Jesus continues, but when this young man was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said, now he's, he's going to lay out that speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, notice he doesn't even reply to the son. He turns to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And we're told they began to be merry. At this point in Jesus' parable, the scene shifts away from the prodigal son and onto the prodigal's father. Though I'm sure his father was incredibly disappointed that his son had asked for his inheritance early, only then to immediately reject the life he was offering to start a new life for himself. But it shouldn't be overlooked, though disappointed. This father, he didn't resist his son's wishes, did he? As a matter of fact, he honored him. You want the inheritance? I'm grieved, but here you go. This father loved his son enough to allow his son to even reject the father's love. Additionally, as an act of love, this father allowed his son's free will to set him upon a course this wise father knew would end tragically, would end poorly. Based on the verses we just read, I think it's likely that not a day had gone by since the prodigal left that this father hadn't longed deeply for the return of his son. We're told that when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. You see, this indicates that this dad had not just been hoping for his son's return, not, not just had been praying for his son's return. This father had sat out front day after day looking for his son's return, the moment his boy would come home. And notice the first thing that happens within the heart of this father upon seeing this boy, this prodigal returning. Jesus tells us the father was what? He was filled with compassion. How amazing it is. His immediate reaction was not anger or a vindication. I knew he'd come back. I told him. I told him so. It's interesting that it's not even pity. It's compassion. The father's heart was broken. Why? Well, he considered all of the things that had to have transpired in that boy's life to get him to the point he would eat humble pie and come home. To see him from afar off, that father knew life in that far country had to have gotten terrible. For him to reach a point of desperation that he would come back. Once again, to Jesus' Jewish audience, what happens, what follows, was unthinkable. The idea that a father, yet alone this one, who had been so insulted, would run and fall on his son's neck and kiss him, that idea was unfathomable. 
Like in this culture, a distinguished man, a distinguished older man would never, ever run. To do so was undignified. You see, what his audience would have expected, the son coming back, would be for this father to sit still, to sit at home. Yes, he might have been willing to forgive. Yes, there might have been a restoration. But this father in this culture, the expectation is that he would have sat there, allowed the son to come, allowed the son to then prostrate himself and beg for forgiveness. That's the picture they expected, not what Jesus describes. You see, the reason that this detail is so important is that it communicated to Jesus' audience and us the incredible, radical, to a degree, revolutionary depths of this father's love for his son. While the son may have been on his way home, it was the father who ran out to meet him. This father's love for his child would not be restricted by custom. This father cared nothing about dignity. His heart moved and so did his feet. Why? For his son who was dead is alive, who was lost, is, is found. There's no time for formality. The time is for celebration. The tense that Jesus uses in the text, it's emphatic. He ran. He grabbed hold of his son. He embraced him. He fell on his neck. He showers him with love and affection. Then when the son starts into his rehearsed speech of repentance, what does the father do? He cuts him off. You see, this dad didn't need to hear anything to know his son had repented. The simple fact he was headed home communicated all this father needed to know. What's most amazing about this story is the fact that the father did more than accept, receive his prodigal. He didn't close him. He instructs the servants to put on him the best robe, to put sandals on his feet, to put a ring on his finger. Beyond all of this, they were to bring out the fatted calf so they could all celebrate, invite the town, the son's return. Though the prodigal rightly understood that he was no longer worthy to be a son. The incredible thing is that his worthiness mattered not in the eyes of his father. Though he had rejected his dad and ran off to start a new life, the moment he returned, not only did his father accept him and demonstrate love and affection towards him, running out to meet him, but this father does something amazing, mind-blowing. He restores him to his position of son. Max Licato adds this great observation, writing, quote, The difference between mercy and grace? Mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. Grace gave him a feast. Well, verse 25, we read, Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come. And because he, speaking of the father, has received him safe and sound, your dad killed the fatted calf 
But this older brother was angry. It would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his dad, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. The implications being, unlike the other brother, I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet, you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who devoured your livelihood with harlots, what did you do? You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, The father speaking, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. But it was right that we should make merry and be glad. And here's here's why. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. As Jesus is finishing his story, the scene shifts one final time from the prodigal son to the prodigal's father, from the prodigal's father, now to the prodigal's older brother. Unlike his younger brother, this son hadn't squandered his inheritance. Not only had he remained with his father, but he had, we can assume, taken over the family business. Note, the scene opens with him returning from a long day in the field when he heard the music and the dancing. Outwardly, this older brother was a model son. From his own lips, a point that isn't debated. We're told that he had spent his years doing what? Serving. Serving his father, never once transgressing his father's commandments. And yet, keep in mind, while he'd been busy playing the part, the problem is that he didn't share his father's heart. Notice, not only was he angry at the grace that had been shown his prodigal brother, But the way he reacts to the pleading of his father to come in and join in the feast, it reveals a very deep, a brewing animus. Keep in mind, the older brother's reaction to dear old dad was not a momentary rash of anger. His feeling towards his father had been brewing for some time. Fundamentally, this older son disagreed with what? With the way his father rewarded people. Though his father deeply desired this son join the other in this feast, the prodigal's brother stubbornly refuses. And he does so for two reasons. One, he he does this because he views his father's grace as being unfair. Do, Do you sense that from the text? Because his younger brother had had devoured his livelihood with harlots. Beyond this grace being unfair, it was unjust. Like, his brother didn't deserve forgiveness. He didn't deserve restoration, yet alone such a reception. And in contrast, he had been faithful. He had been obedient. You see, grace being demonstrated to the younger brother. The older brother was angry because it was unjust and it was unfair. It wasn't right. It didn't make sense. He says, I did all of these things. I served. I was faithful. 
unlike my, my brother. But you never rewarded me. You never gave me anything. I never got a feast. I never got a reception, yet alone a goat that I could make merry with my friends. See, grace to the older brother was unfair and it was unjust, which is why he rejected it. Actor Ricky Gervais, he sympathizes with the older brother's perspective. This is what he writes, quote, I never understood redemption when I was young. Even before I was an atheist, I always thought with the prodigal son, well, why is he getting special treatment? See, when you read through the story and you, and, you, and you read through the reaction of the older brother, there is an element by which we could kind of sympathize with his animus, with his, his perspective. Like, wait a second, I've been doing all of this, I've never been rewarded. My brother did all of this, these bad things, and he comes back and you give him a feast. What's up with this? Like, you can sympathize. You know, it's interesting. But the story arc of this story, the parable, it takes this weird twist at the end. One son rejects the father for carnal reasons, only to return and then enjoy the grace of his father. Then because the older brother, the obedient older brother, perceives his father's grace to be unjust and unfair, he does what? He then proceeds to reject his father, the invitation to join in the feast, on now moral grounds. Ironically, Jesus ends the story with no resolution. He ends the story with the prodigal son restored and partying with dad, but the older brother separated from his father and alienated from the party. It's a weird twist, which leads me to just two very quick observations. First, the parable of the prodigal son illustrates an important fact. Your flesh can separate you from the love of your father by employing one of two opposite strategies, carnal living or religious moralism. Carnal living will separate you from the father. But on the flip side, as illustrated by this older brother, so will moralism. You can say, I don't need Jesus because this world gives me all I want. Or you can say, I don't need Jesus because I'm good enough for heaven. Like there is this dichotomy within the story, two polar ends of the spectrum, carnal living or moralism, doing the wrong thing or doing the right things can separate you from God. To this point, Timothy Keller writes, neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him. Note this, either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message, Keller writes. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. We should caution against both, thinking we're good enough or not caring. Secondly, 
Because the demonstration of the Father's grace only required what in our story? Do you notice it? What were the only requirements for this prodigal to receive the forgiveness, the restoration, the love, the infection, the favor, the feast, his mercy and grace? The only thing needed was what? He had to repent and return, right? That was all that was asked, all that was needed. Those were the conditions. And as such, the parable of the prodigal son illustrates that it's often much harder for moralistic people, the self-righteous, the religious, to enter the kingdom of God than those who have engaged in a prodigal lifestyle. Well, it made sense to the prodigal that he needed to repent and come home. It's true, life in the pig pen has a way of changing one's perspective, right? And the prodigal son even had a a greater sense to enjoy the feast, right? As soon as dad made the offer, he was willing to accept. He knew, man, I'm playing with house money. But the truth is that this older brother rejects his father and the invitation because he wouldn't accept the terms for entry. Hearing that his father had given his brother something he'd been working so hard to attain, well, that was more than he could stomach. You see, the fundamental problem, friend, with religion is that it presents heaven as a reward, not a gift. Something we work hard to attain, not something God lovingly bestows. This is why the gospel of grace is such an insult, so offensive to the moralist, to the legalist. It's why so many churches resist the full power of God's grace. You see, the only prerequisite for salvation is that I receive something I admit I could never earn on my own. It removes me from the equation. It removes my righteousness, my works, my deservedness. See, the older brother could never admit, like the younger, that he too was unworthy. For the prodigal son, the invitation, God's grace, man, it was welcome news. But the prodigal's bro- for the prodigal brother, this bridge this idea of grace, this was far, a bridge too far for him to cross. Now, before we continue, I want to establish very quickly the larger context for why and to whom Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. Look back at Luke 15, but go back to the beginning. The first three verses, we read, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they complained, saying, quote, This man, Jesus, he receives sinners and he eats with them? So Jesus spoke this parable to them. Now for context, it's rather amazing. After looking at the parable of the prodigal son, that his audience that day was comprised of two vastly different groups. On one side of the sanctuary, 
You had a group of prodigals, these tax collectors and sinners. On the other side of the sanctuary, you had a group of self-righteous older brothers, these Pharisees and scribes. And while it's, it's obvious how this particular parable applied to each of these two subsets, the deeper point Jesus is making through the parable of the prodigal son might not seem as obvious as you'd think. Sure, there is absolutely an aspect of this story whereby Jesus is directly addressing the, the criticism that he was receiving. While the Pharisees were complaining that Jesus was willing to receive tax collectors and sinners, he makes it abundantly clear to these moralists that his approach to such prodigals, his approach to such people was more in line with what? The heart of God than theirs. They're standing aside judging, looking down upon, feeling as though they're better. And Jesus is like, in comparison to you, what I'm doing by receiving these people and ministering to these people and demonstrating mercy and grace to these people, what I'm doing is more like our Father in heaven than you, buddy. They understood this. And yet, beyond the obvious, I'm convinced Jesus is larger purpose for the parable, I think it went totally unspoken, but was totally understood. Keep in mind, you might have already figured this out, but the parable of the prodigal son is in actuality the last of three parables that Jesus has just given this diverse crowd. What makes this significant is that the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost coin establishes a very clear reality. When something of value is lost, we have a responsibility to go out and to retrieve it. The lost sheep, the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes out and he pursues the one. Why? Because it was important to him. It was valuable to him. Interestingly enough, on the surface, right? This story of the prodigal seems to be communicating the opposite idea, right? Whereas there was a sheep that was lost, the shepherd goes to find it. In this story, we have a lost son doing what? Willingly coming back, returning. And yet what's left out might be Jesus's point. While the older brother, whose attitude illustrates that of these religious leaders, was busy serving and obeying the commandments of his father, hoping what? That his actions would lead to an increased favor. The truth, and I think the point Jesus is trying to make, is that if they really desired, if this older brother really desired to please his father, what would he have done? Continue his work in the fields? Or would he have geared up and gone to a far country to retrieve that which was lost? You see, in much a similar fashion, these religious leaders had been given an inheritance that they hadn't squandered with prodigal living. Serving God and obeying his commandments is not a bad thing. And yet, in presenting to his audience the incredible joy 
that this father experienced the moment his prodigal son, who was dead, was, was alive, who was lost, but was found, his reaction, the father's joy, Jesus is letting them know. He's illustrating, he's, he's communicating this because they had missed something. It's as though Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, to the older brother in the audience, don't you see, don't you understand, don't you realize what really does bring our heavenly father the most joy? It's not your service. It's not your obedience. It's when a prodigal is found and returned. It's not what you do around your father's house. Instead, I can hear Jesus saying, if you're really desiring to bring the father the greatest joy, the most intense pleasure, like me, you would go out into the world to retrieve your prodigal brothers and sisters. Here, not only are you, are you angry about them being allowed in, your attitude should have been a desire to go out and get them to bring them back. And why was all of that important? Well, as the prodigal's example so starkly illustrates for us, the greatest lie ever told man is that life is better apart from the Father. That life in this world is better apart from the Father. This young man truly believed he was going to discover a better, more satisfying life in the world as apart from life under the influence of dad. And yet it didn't take long for him to realize it was all a ruse. Instead of happiness, his life was filled with regret Instead of meaning, he was void of purpose. Instead of fulfillment, he was left wanting. In place of community, he experienced only loneliness. The prodigal went out seeking greener pastures, only to be left with famine. In the end, the world would turn him over, chew him up, and spit him out worse than he ever was. Understand this. It's absolutely true that sin is an act of rebellion against your creator. But don't forget, the greatest damage sin yields is in the creator's design. Friend, prodigal living will literally kill you. What's amazing about this parable is that while the prodigal unexplainably came to his senses, right? We're not told exactly what it was. Making this decision, I'm going back to the Father. Now, that's not exactly an experience that we share. Instead of the Father sitting at home, waiting for us to finally wake up and come back to him, what's our experience? Well, God's firstborn son, Jesus, intentionally set out on a mission to save. You see, it's in this sense that in contrast to the inaction of the older brother, Jesus is presenting himself as a more perfect brother. Though Jesus could have remained with his father, right? You're always with me. And while it's true he'd been given the full inheritance, all that I have is yours. Jesus willingly left his home and his father in heaven to do what? to come to a far country for a simple reason, to seek out the prodigal, to seek out you 
to seek out me. And why would he do this? Well, he knew that nothing would bring his father more joy than seeing one of his lost children who was dead made alive again. While the story of the prodigal abruptly ends with the older brother remaining angry and self-righteous, the younger, whose life had been so completely destroyed by sin, not only experienced the love and forgiveness of his father, was not only restored to his position as son, but in the end, notice what the servants observe. They observed that this man was now, quote, safe and sound. In the Greek, this is one word, indicating that this man was literally made whole. Though my sins were as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Friend, if you identify this morning as a prodigal, if you're a prodigal rejecting the Father's love, or you identify with a self-righteous older brother who's struggling to be good enough, whether it's carnal living or moralism alienating you from your father, understand what Jesus is saying to us this morning through this parable, what he's saying to you. Not only does your heavenly father love you, not only is his grace more than sufficient to restore you, not only is it a truth that your worthiness matters not in the eyes of your father, but know this, and I think it's the point of the parable, that his son Jesus, your more perfect brother, willingly came to earth to save you. Jesus, friend, came to a far country for the specific purpose of bringing you home. This morning, Easter Sunday, it recognizes the completion of that work. That on the cross, Jesus atoned for your sin. That he made a way for you to be able to repent and return. To be reconciled with the Father. But it's this morning we recognize he conquered sin. He conquered death. You see, Jesus went to the far country And he died for the sins of the prodigal so we could come back to the Father. And he rose three days later, letting us know definitively that there is a way, that there is a path. We can be certain. But not only that, I think there is a a bigger lesson for us Christians. We've been sent into a far country with a mission not to look down upon or to judge those prodigals among us. Like we're called to be older brothers. Older brothers not in the model of this one, but in the model of that one. Not to be self-righteous. You see, we need to accept grace for ourselves. It's unfair and it's unjust for a purpose. Our favor is not based in our righteousness, 
but in his righteousness. The most unfair and unjust thing to have ever happened on planet earth is for Jesus to be nailed to that tree at Calvary. For he did nothing wrong and had not sinned. And yet note, from that flowed the greatest thing that's ever happened on this earth. That Jesus rose to work in us and then to work through us. That we can go into the world, not to expect prodigals to come to us, but to go out there to reach them and to bring them. There's a lot in this story that I think can speak to a lot of different people. If you're a prodigal who's run, know the world will rip you off. It promises things it will never provide. And if you don't believe me now, just keep going. You'll reach a day, I promise, where you're like, this is stupid. And it's in that moment, no, your father is waiting for you to turn. And it's in that moment, he'll run to meet you. Your father never runs from you. You only run from him. And it's that moment you're willing to stop and turn around, guess who you'll find? He's been behind you the whole time, just waiting. So if you're that prodigal, this morning, stop running. Is life in the pig pen really worth it? You having a good time? Truly? If you're a believer and you've been dabbling with prodigal living, don't believe the lie. Your father is not holding out on you. There is no better place to be in this life than in your father's tent. It's a party, man. Life. And that more abundantly. Everything the world promises and fails, Jesus promises and provides. For he will never fail. Lots packed into this story. If you join me, let's pray. Father.